It's a great pleasure to be back here and it's a great honor to be speaking to you. I left Oxford 40 years ago to teach uh, social anthropology at the LSE in London. And three, three years later, I left academic life altogether, became a Portuguese diplomat, and later as Secretary General of the Western European Union, an international public servant. From 2001 to 2004, I was back in academia as a George F. Cannon professor at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. And since the end of 2004, I've been a special advisor to the president of the European Commission. It was therefore a surprising honor to be invited to lecture here today because I've not been in this kind of business for a long time. When I came up to Oxford to do a diploma in anthropology, The university had just, I think it was then, published an inquiry into itself um, that was done to forestall the possibility that the government might wish to do an inquiry in Fox. So Oxford did it itself. And it became known as the Franks Report because Lord Franks was the, the chairman of the committee that prepared the report. And, uh, In the, when, and I read it because I, had, I was just arriving. It was a good way of becoming familiar with the, the university. And in the beginning, in the introduction, they say that they had heard, because they heard people, they asked for written submissions about Oxford in general, different faculties, colleges, and so forth. And um, they had, had, had all these many views and read, but if they had to choose one, Uh, that would encapsulate what, in their view, was the general feeling emerging from those testimonies. They would pick up a statement and then, in breakfast, you see uh, written con uh, oral contributions, volumes, something paged out, and the statement was, it's a fine place. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember anymore from whom they have picked it up. Sometimes I think it was Sir John Hicks, but I'm not sure. And, uh, and uh, in, in Brussels, I couldn't get to the Franks report, let alone to its annexes. Um, and when I left for London eight years later, I still agreed with that view and have not changed my mind since. There are certainly many ways to explain to a stranger why Oxford is a fine place. And I, claim, I came across one years ago in, uh, in Harold Macmillan's memoirs. Macmillan read history at Balliol. And in his last year, he says, one of his tutors told the departing undergraduates that most of them would leave academia and its arcane subjects to go and govern colonies, manage banks, build bridges, run the country. But if they had worked hard enough during their time at Oxford, they would know later when a man is talking rot. And I think <laughs> to learn when a man is talking rot is the best thing a university can do. So I hope they still do it here. Um, Professor Earle invited me in the spring, writing that I could choose any day of the last week of Michaelmas and could choose the topic as well. I accepted and said that I would let him know both date and title before the end of August. In September, um, he kindly reminded me of my broken promise. And to a query of mine, he answered that the audience would, be, would very probably include students of Portuguese as well as political scientists. I have lived mostly in Brussels for the last few years. Um, And one of the great Portuguese writers of the 19th century, Almeida Garret, that all those who do Portuguese know, lived there in the early 1830s as diplomatic envoy of the King of Portugal to the first King of the Belgians. And about that time, he published Portugal na Balança da Europa, which is a kind of political essay, one of whose of which purposes was to praise the newly established United States of America and its modernity. And I decided I could adapt that title and call, go something of that kind. 
and the modern version of Garrett's essay might deal with Portugal and the European Union, both of them confronting globalization. But since September, the pace of European troubles has accelerated. The relations between the United States and Europe on one side and the so-called emerging powers on the other go through unprecedented experiences. The European sovereign debt crisis has become much worse with markets having a go at Germany herself. And after talking to my hosts, I changed to the present title. And to be honest, I don't know which title you saw because the, I, I suggested two or three possibilities. I don't know which one was chosen. But anyhow, I'm going to go to talk about the crisis. Uh, and, uh, and before dealing with the European crisis itself, I thought we might take note of the place of Europe in the world as it is now, not as seen by Euro the Europeans themselves. On the 16th of last month in Bali, where he was attending for the first time a meeting of Southeast Asian nations, to sign a cooperation agreement with ASEAN, the foreign minister of Brazil, Antonio Patriota, said in an interview with Reuters that the financial crisis battering Europe showed that the emerging, the emerging world's time was now. And I will quote him at length. And this is him. I think we are experiencing truly tectonic changes when it comes to the configuration of power internationally. These changes were accelerated by the 2008 economic crisis and now a second wave with the European crisis and its impact in the world economy. It has become clear that the engines for growth and dynamism in the world economy have been economies that share some common traits. They still have large segments that are underdeveloped or that live in poverty. But at the same time, they have demonstrated a capacity to generate high levels of growth, expanding markets, technological advance. So it is natural that these new players assume greater responsibilities and take a bigger share of the decision-making power. For our part, that is for Brazil's part, as he was speaking, this may be the first time in our history when we have truly global influence. And this point made by the Brazilian minister is a general point that I think the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, um, would all of them endorse. And there are other powers joining the queue for emerging presences. From Moscow, from Beijing, from other capitals, similar pronouncements have recently come, often accompanied by derogatory references to the alleged decline of the West. Those who make those references seem to forget, or perhaps they didn't know it in the first place, that decline has been a frequent theme of Western culture since the beginning of Greek civilization, at least, with successive generations feeling that they are worse off than their predecessors, and men of letters prophesizing doom. Why this is so, I don't know. I remember one, one possible reason uh, that A.J.P. Taylor, writing 40 or 50 years ago in a review of some book, I don't remember which book, in the, in the Observer, I think it was at the time, wrote that all this talk about the decline of civilization was a result of the fact that history dons used to have servants, and now they have to do their own laundry. <laughs> and, and, and that's about it. But <laughs> there may be other reasons, and, and perhaps the European tradition of war and violence accounts for that gloomy reiteration. It's a tradition, that tradition of, of war among Europeans, that European construction 
in the eyes of its builders should have stopped for good. And there was some hope of that, or there is still perhaps some hope of that. I had a, a French general who worked with me at the WU in, in the late 90s, uh, came from a part of northern France, and we were driving to go somewhere, and he told me it in the car. And in that large part of northern France, it was the first time in a thousand years that there had now been peace for five decades. That is, where armies had not been fighting each other or marching through on the way to battles. In European history, works of literature devoted to decay were often followed by periods of triumph after wars in different places. However, now things may be a bit different. There are many more measurable variables than in the past, leading, leading to the quantification and comparison of trends from birth rates to economic growth to literacy to white band usage, you know, you, whatever. And in the last few decades, the West stopped colonizing and neocolonizing the rest. You know, there is this division that some people make between the West and the rest. And very recently, the West began even looking at some of its former colonies or uh, oppressed civilizations or countries or regions that, that they dominated as potential cash lenders to alleviate sovereign debt. And through radio, television, internet, all of us follow whatever happens now in real time. I remember when I was a boy in London, and sorry, in Lisbon, I saw a, a film, an American Hollywood Technicolor film about, I don't remember the name, about the fall of the Roman Empire. And there was a, an exasperated Roman a senator or someone who addressed the, a distracted emperor and he said, the empire is falling and you don't notice it. And the well-educated Europeans laughed at such a naive American view of history. Well, today I don't think I would. Now our own empire, so to speak, is falling and we cannot avoid noticing it. Also for the first time in at least 500 years, we start thinking that we may not be the center of the world after all. This doesn't mean, if I may add, that the optimism of the uh, Brazilian minister will last long or that China or India or whoever will just like in a, in a in one of these races where you take the, how do you call them in English? Relay race. Uh, relay race. It's not that they take the relay because some of these countries are going to be, to have great difficulties. And the, the first is now being seen immediately. I mean, because of the European crisis, things are becoming serious in China and in India for their export on which they live. So it's not obvious that Europe or, and the United States are declining and, and we know exactly what's coming back, what's coming to take over. It's not that. However, uh, the fact is that um, the, what anthropologists would like to call the ethnocentrism of uh, Europeans has taken a, another beating this time. And in this unprecedented environment, many Europeans, and not only in England, are asking if they would not be better off without the European Union as such, then within it. And I will come back to that later. Either way, they look at the future with apprehension. We all do, I suppose, nowadays. The ongoing problems of sovereign debt in Greece, Ireland, Portugal, Italy, Spain, and now everywhere in the Eurozone, including Germany, call attention to the difficulties of a union made of countries with different languages, cultures, historical traditions, and levels of economic development, the first batch of which were put together peacefully after the Second World War, both in the European Union and together with the Americans in NATO, because Stalin and his successes, but at the time of the beginning of it is all was Stalin, 
put the fear of God on Western European bones. Uh, Paul Henri Spack was a great Belgian politician and resistant and then Secretary General of NATO later on. Um, once wrote a little piece that appears in, in a volume of uh, memoirs that he has called Combat in HV, Unfinished Combats, in which he says that many people have been called the father of Europe, Europe in the sense of the modern the European communities and so forth that led to the European Union. And he doesn't say that he himself was, but he was. And others, like the Gaspari, I mean, uh, Italians, Schumann. Uh, and he says none of that. The father of Europe was Stalin. Without the fear of Stalin, nothing of this would have happened. I mean, and he was absolutely right. He published this in 1970. The collapse of the Soviet Union has left the Europeans without an overwhelming strong common enemy that would make them bury their differences and act jointly more easily. And furthermore, visionary leaders, Kohl, uh, Mitterrand, Jacques Delors, had invented and imposed a single currency without due coordination of the national economic and financial systems concerned. Moreover, and more than ever before, the Europe of today is linked in a variety of ways to the rest of the world, and in particular, its economic, financial, and commercial bonds with the United States are unique. There's nothing comparable between any two other blocks of the world today that have this kind of so close and intense and, and rich relationship. And neither is there between either Europe or the United States and any other block you could want to consider. And therefore, the 2008 crisis following the crash of Lehman Brothers had severe consequences in Europe. Europeans, however, I think that uh, we could say that um, Europeans would not find themselves where they are today without two key decisions that were taken decades ago. One of them was taken in America, it spread and had effects in the rest of the world. It was the deregulation of markets started by Reagan pursued by Bush father, Clinton, and Bush son, and tolerated by Obama, which drove a wider and wider wedge between what was going on in stock markets and what is often called the real economy. Some people even can talk of stock markets, particularly um, at the time of the subprimes and just up to Lehman Brothers a crash um, as casinos. And this one thing, and halfway through, the collapse of the Soviet Union swept away both an alternative model of society, although nobody believed in it anymore very much, but it was still there, and a scary bogeyman. And with that, the, the, the collapse of the Union accelerated the pace of imprudence, if you wish. And the, some, the subprime crisis where the, was the cherry on the cake. The other decision, particularly relevant to the sovereign debt, was the introduction of a single European currency without political unification, or at least a coordination of national fiscal systems. As many predicted at the time, that would lead to crisis if economic conditions deteriorated. The subprime crisis was a result of greed. The sovereign debt crisis resulted from a combination of greed and misplaced idealism, I would call it, or if you put it less grandly, a kind of nouveau riche naivety. And I am not here to apportion blame, but I think that 
Reagan and company have more excuses than the law and company because they did believe that the regulation would improve economic growth, whereas the law knew from the start that without some form of economic governance, the euro wouldn't hold. He had hoped that that would come in the process that uh, was being uh, fall, that was going on of the uh, European, let's call it European construction. And indeed, if if the Soviet Union had, lo had lasted some ten years more, that would have been it. <laughs> I think you would have an unified Western Europe. But uh, whether that would have been a good thing or not is another matter. But but you would have gone that way. But in the post uh, Berlin Wall crash. Uh, uh, Europe, that was not like that. And um, still, to have, uh, to have a, a better idea of what the crisis is affecting, that is, of what economic and commercial power the European Union is, it may be useful to recall a few facts and figures. Europe is the first economy in the world 21% of, of the world GDP against 20% from the United States and 17% for China. It is the first recipient of foreign direct investment, 230 billion euros against 100 billion euros to the United States and less than 80 billion for China. And for instance, the, the country in the world that receives more uh, foreign direct investment is the Netherlands. It's not, uh, any, not India or Brazil. Or it is also Europe, the first world market, 2,378 billion euros against 1,416 for the United States and something in between 2,235 for the whole of Africa. Um, sorry, the whole of Asia. Africa is much less. And it is also Europe, it is the European Union is the main provider of development aid. And the euro is the second reference currency in the world. And curiously enough, this is, has been called sometimes the crisis of the euro. The euro has behaved splendidly during all this crisis. It, it, it has not developed, it has been more or less what it was, it has grown a bit even, improved a bit in exchanges. Furthermore, Europe ranks first when it comes to development indicators, poverty, education, health, life expectancy, infant mortality, distribution of income, social conditions, health services, uh, labor conditions, retirement. Um, and political life in European societies in all the countries of the European Union is as distant as you can find it anywhere in the world today. And although Europe has been called the sick man of the world because of its debts, it is less indebted than the United States, 80% of GDP against almost 100%, and its growth was not as fueled by credit as that of the Americans, an average of 16% savings rate in Europe against 4% in the United States. Um, at this moment, I had noted here that I should say ladies and gentlemen. So I say it, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, what triggered the market's interest in European finances was the announcement less than two years ago, about 18 months ago, by the, incoming, by the then incoming Greek Prime Minister, George Pampandreou, who said publicly that the Greek books had been cooked and that he expected def the deficit to, to be more than the double of that, that, didn't, that had been declared by the previous government. And even more important than that was the German reaction to that. Like a headmaster punishing a, an inconvenient people, a pupil, Germany led the European Union to impose an austerity plan on Greece, submitting her to rigorous scrutiny by the European Commission, 
the European Central Bank and the International Monetary Fund. When that first package of measures failed due to resistance of the Greek people and lack of diligence of the Greek authorities, a second package was imposed. And now a third package is working, is laboring its way, its procedural way to implementation. It was approved recently, last week, I think, by the Ministers of Finance of the, of the Union, of the Eurozone. Under European pressure, Papandreou was eventually replaced by a technocrat, a former governor of the Greek Central Bank, who is leading a government of, of national unity. Intrigued by the problems in Greece and in the other so-called club med countries, and after much discussion, a European stability fund has been created that is still not adequately funded due mainly to German reluctance. Meanwhile, over these 18 months of crisis, it has extended to other countries. Ireland and Portugal asked for Greek-like help. Spain and Italy have been threatened. In Italy, Berlusconi's government was compelled to resign in the technocratic one had by former European Commission Mario Monti was expeditiously established. And then came the turn of solid AAA countries. AAA is in the classification of the, agen the agencies that note the financial health, if you wish, of countries. AAA is the best you can get. And countries like Austria, the Netherlands, Finland, and more importantly, because of the size of her economy and of her prominent role in attempts to devise a a way out of the crisis, France. In the week before last, Germany was bitten to some, uh, they had difficulty in selling uh, some debt that they were convinced they would sell normally, and it didn't happen. The International Herald Tribune put it well, I don't know, about a week ago, in an article, and I quote, the markets had understood that the crisis is getting ahead of the political will to solve it. And I think that is well put. And I think also that is largely Germany's fault. If when the Greek debt was exposed, Angela Merkel had come out and said, the Greek debt is an European debt and we all take care of it, as I think Helmut Kohl would certainly have done. The Greek debt would not have ballooned the markets would have lost interest and go sniff blood elsewhere. I mean, the, the, they would have understood that there was no, not much money to make. I mean, the, they would have been convinced that the Europeans would take care of the problems of one of them, in, in this case, Greece. As it happened, every half-hearted attempt at improvement by the European zone member states left things worse than it had found them and more countries threatened. At any rate, those attempts were probably doomed from the start because led by Germany, applauded by Finland and the Netherlands, they amounted to forms of punishment without any measures to stimulate growth and mobilize people. What could have been and remain an awkward financial mess in a small peripheral country became an existential crisis engulfing the whole of Europe. For well over a year, the German government's short-sightedness denied reality. Then it started yielding little by little, always late and always too little, to what was becoming the general view of its European partners. But it has resisted so far two measures that most governments of her fellow European Union members consider vital to be able to get European finances sound again. To let the ECB, the European Central Bank, a lender of last resort, or, and to accept the issue of euro bonds funded by the 17 members of the Eurozone. The Eurozone 
as you may all know. It's called, it's the countries within the European Union that have the euro as a currency, and there are 17 of them. Each time these two no's, these two nines are reiterated, the probabilities of the collapse of the euro are evoked, and of late, bets are being put on it in, in markets. As a Noruma analyst put it, the prospect of the collapse of the euro has moved from possible to probable. Banks and industries have been considering alternatives already and seeing what they would have to do in case the euro collapsed. I'm sure the British Europhobic press relishes the prospect of what they call Eurogeddon, which is not bad. <laughs> uh, but it is far from certain, I think, that that will come to be uh, for several reasons. The, to start with, the interdependence of European economies, but both in and out of the Eurozone, must be kept in mind. Europeans are the main commercial partners of other Europeans. To take the example of Germany, the strongest of them all, and trade among the Europeans is facilitated by, the, the, by having set up what's called a single market, that is the, a market that has no um, custom barriers among them and many other technical barriers have also been removed, and that has been oiled very much by a single currency, obviously. To take the example of Germany, the strongest of us all, in 2010, Germany exported more goods and services to the Netherlands than to China, to France than to the United States, to Poland than to Russia, to Spain than to Brazil, to Hungary than to India. Uh, if you had a map in front of you, you realize how the, the amount of wealth that exists in Europe still. And abandoning the euro would badly hurt directly 17 member states and indirectly all the others. However, the crisis has highlighted the contradictions of this tightly intertwined um, universe. A monetary union without any reinforcement of coordination of economic and financial policies of its members, a single currency and a single market, but different uncoordinated national budget and fiscal policies. Moreover, and that the origin of the current crisis, for many years, the less affluent member states of the Union enjoyed an, in, an illusion of prosperity. They could borrow money as cheaply as if they were rich. Their governments did so without attempts, in some cases, at consolidation of their economies. Most of them avoided taking the kind of drastic and unpopular measures that, for instance, Gerald Schroeder took to good effect in Germany and he lost elections, but he did that. Jean-Claude Juncker, who is the Prime Minister of Luxembourg, uh, once put it very well, he said, we, meaning prime ministers, we all know what should be done, but we also know that we have to, we have to win elections. And things went on. In fact, what happened for many years is that the less wealthy members of the euro, was it, was, it was as if they were traveling first class with an economy ticket and an upgrade. <laughs> and now they say, the others are saying there's no, there are no more upgrades. I mean, br brutally. And uh, that makes the trip much more uncomfortable. The crisis exposed major European weaknesses, notably the high level of public and private debt in several states. That will be lengthy and painful to correct and also the postponement of badly needed structural reforms. And adapting the aging and rigid union to the new globalization world will be rougher now than it would have been if there had been no crisis. And then what is to be done? Certainly the most important thing is to restore trust.
trust and credibility, without, without which, by the way, it would have been impossible for France and Germany to put coal and steel together in the first place. It was that that eventually led to what is today the European Union. We need banks that are able to lend, companies that are willing to invest, and consumers that are willing to spend, bold reforms at national level, and the enhanced cooperation in governance at European level. We must recover the solidarity that accompanied European construction from the beginning and got somehow lost in the last decades. And I don't know why, I don't think. Was it because we have all been too prosperous? Or was it because of the absence of serious threats to our security? Whatever the reasons, the current crisis revealed that this time solidarity was not, it certainly was not, a spontaneous reflex, as someone put it, when fellow Europeans were in trouble. It didn't happen like that. And it's true that the European idea and the institution building of the, what is today the European Union started very much as an elite project and it was submitted to public scrutiny rather late. It was in, the, in 1992 with the Maastricht Treaty that was submitted to referenda. Um, until then, uh, things were done in, by politicians and technocrats without great, uh, uh, not demanding very much what the public thought. However, the European, the European Union and the European communities before it have often shown solidarity. And one interesting case is, for instance, the support that Germany got from the other 11 members, there were 12 members in the, Euro in the European Union at the time, at the difficult time of German reunification. Together with renewed solidarity, responsibility will have to be reinforced if we want to avoid the repetitions of what it has this time. Because even if I have gone a bit on Germany, well, one has also to admit that what the Greeks did is, shouldn't be done. I mean, it, uh, not only the, the falsification of the books, but also the extraordinary things. I was told, I can't guarantee that is true, but that uh, um, hairdressers in Greece had special uh, advantages because it was a dangerous job. You, you can cut yourself, you know, <laughs> and retiring very early and all the rest of it. Also, when the first austerity measures were announced, apparently one business that developed qu quickly in, in Greece was a thing that existed already. It's, a, it's some chap that makes covers for swimming pools, and if you look at that from the air, it seems like the garden. I mean, you, you, you don't have a swimming pool. <laughs> so, and that's good for tax purposes. But, uh, <laughs> and so responsibility will have to be reinforced. It, there, have, there have been decisions already taken in, also in the direction of a better cooperation among us, Europeans. But care is needed to, to, to prevent a development of a two-speed Europe, that is the Europe of the Euro and the Europe that has not the Euro, or even worse, a three-speed Europe, because there will be a sign, there are attempts now to build a kind of rich countries club inside the Euro, but also going and fetching members outside, like Sweden or Poland, that has great potential. And that, if we go into this direction, I think it's going to be very difficult to keep the project going. And I think that at some point, national governments and European institutions should make clear to all European citizens that the real power of the, Euro the European Union, its economic and commercial strength, and its potential for growth, what makes it one of the world powers is, and gives it, it, gives it its clout are the single market and competition. Uh, the European Union can um, go and 
prevent Microsoft from doing things if we think that they are not right. And, and we have been right, and, and they have been fine, brutally fine. Gazprom we have not found yet, but uh, that may come one day. Uh, and, um, and the single market is the most uh, uh, profitable invention of all this exercise. And I'm afraid most Europeans ignore it. And they don't know either that any weakening of the Union as such would be deeply felt in, in commercial and in, in the commercial losses at national level. That is, if you, if you lose the power that you have because we are together and we negotiate together with other wealth-producing parts of the world, each of us separately, starting by Germany, which by far the richest at the moment, wouldn't go any close to what we have today. And this, this is difficult, but to understand, but it's a thing that uh, should be so told. And although it was ill-conceived from the start in many ways, the euro is very important, and we have reached a point where to abandon it, it would be much more expensive than to keep it. And I think that it would also have a devastating moral effect, because uh, imagine, uh, but we don't have the euro here. And uh, it's impossible to go into the problem of the euro in the United Kingdom. It's a, it's a different story. But uh, countries in Europe changed not very. I was in Princeton at the time. I think it was uh, 2002, perhaps, that the coins and notes actually came. It's very, very recently. And now suddenly say that, no, it's not that anymore. And also it is, in practical terms, extremely difficult to assess in what position different countries would stay with their recovered national uh, currencies. The, meanwhile, the most urgent of European tasks, and I assume that still go on, remains to complete the single market that is particularly in the vastly neglected service sector. Uh, are just services are the European Union's biggest untapped source of jobs and economic growth. They account for 70% of Europe's output, but only 23% of Europe's trade. There is room to grow. If the EU services, there is a directive uh, from the e European Union Commission, and if that directive were fully implemented, it could deliver more than 600,000 new jobs. It should also be extended to financial services, health, employment, and social services. We could do more to capitalize fully on our strengths in trade and foreign direct investment in services. As the French saying goes, a boulevard lays open in front of us if we are willing and able to take it. But to attend to, hold to all that, the current crisis will have to be overcome. It is a political crisis. It stems from a lack of vision and a lack of solidarity. As we all know, I'm not an economist, by the way, but economists have differed from the beginning on the measures that should be taken to try to heal this crisis. And at this stage, you have on one side, in one corner, if it were boxing, you have those who back the German Chancellor, and they, they include the governor of the Central European Central Bank. They are adamant that the European Central Bank should not be a lender of last resort, and that euro bonds would be premature before an economic governance of Europe would bring it close to a federal state with respected rules and regulations. Treaties must be amended before, and this is a very lengthy business, as we know. The guilty states must mend their ways, following German dictated measures, before they can get significant outside help. On the opposite side, you have many other economists, most European member states, 
including in her heart France, which has always preferred to live with a little inflation. It helps, it makes things go. And the prestigious participant <coughs> observers, like for instance, the Economist in the New York Times, most of them think that to wait for self-correction by the sinful before acting decisively would break the euro and very likely the union itself. Voices on both sides can be persuasive, but it seems to me, and I think it seems to many people now, that if markets keep demanding punitive rates and nothing is done to dissuade them, even a big country like Italy could soon fold. Short-term common sense will have to prevail over ideal rigor. I hope that the German government will understand and accept that. Perhaps more easily now, the Austrian banks are having difficulties with Eastern European debts than it would have been a couple of months ago. Many people have been calling on the Germans to reconsider their stance. A recent eloquent appeal was made in a speech in Berlin by the Polish Foreign Minister, Mr. Radek Sikorski, this last Monday. And this is from there, and it, also, it was also a title of a thing he published in the Financial Times based on that. I fear German power less than I am beginning to fear German inactivity. Well, when the, fo when the Polish foreign minister say that, <laughs> you, you have to understand that it's a very serious situation. It's not very Polish to say that kind of thing about Germany. And if Germany does not see reason, the euro risks the fate of the Englishman's horse. You probably know what it is, but I'll tell you. As a child in Portugal, I was told the story of an Englishman who was teaching his horse to live without eating. The animal reacted well to eating less and less food every day, but when he, well, he was almost ready to live with no food at all, he died. <laughs> and that might be the end of European German hands, but perhaps not. Uh, meanwhile, uh, as you may have seen in the press, Central banks have gathered together, joined to give some help to the markets and create the possibility to have dollars available cheaper to, to European banks, basically. Monsieur Sarkozy is addressing, is making a speech in Toulon about these matters now, so we don't, and Mrs. Merkel will address the Bundestag tomorrow. Next week, there is a European summit in Brussels on the 8th and the 9th. It takes it is expected that France and Germany will come with proposals that would allow progress in the direction of European economic governance without requiring a new treaty. That would, be, that would facilitate a more flexible stance of the European Central Bank, showing markets that the governments of the Union are indeed behind the Euro. With the price of borrowing down to reasonable figures, Work would then concentrate on economic growth and financial coordination among European member states to avoid persistent recession and to prevent the repetition of crises like the one we have been in. Great care should be taken to guarantee a level playing field to Eurozone and non-Eurozone together. Um, but deep divisions will still remain, divisions that the fear of the Soviets and then common prosperity for a few decades hid from the eyes of the Western Europeans. Contrary to what some of its apologists seem to believe, the European Union, if it is not contra natura, it is certainly counterintuitive, which, by the way, is also the case of democracy. And like democracy, the European Union Working for a, a united Europe in the European Union requires constant and laborious tending. And sharp differences remain among Europeans. One might imagine, I've mentioned some, just one particular, 
One might imagine the parallel in Europe, roughly at Brussels latitude. North of that line, authority is in principle legitimate. And unless otherwise warned, you believe what a stranger tells you. South of that line, authority is in principle illegitimate and you don't believe what a stranger tells you unless he comes recommended by kin or by patron. And it has been like this for many centuries. This is one reason why, beyond all the great powers rivalries, it has been so difficult to peacefully put the Europeans together. Self-interest is, of course, a strong motive. Uh, strong motive. Therefore, the great material advantages brought by membership of the Union should be shown to the European citizenries much more than they are today. Debates over alleged losses of sovereignty are fashionable now to degrade and belittle the European project. It would be perhaps more useful to inform the public of what common foreign trade, the single market, and competition do for all of us. That might even make people in different corners of the Union, from Scotland to Greece, from Germany to Malta, realize the political importance of the Union as such. Jacques Delors was the midwife of the single market. And in case the euro goes the way of all flesh, he will also be its undertaker. But anyhow, famously said that no one could fall in love with the market. That's why people don't respond to Europe. But there should be no need to. The EU can be loved like a man or a, cannot be loved like a man or a woman. And it has not replaced or joined the fatherland of any of us. It is not our child either. Its role in the lives of the citizens of its member states is closer to those of an insurance company and the stock market brokerage rolled together. In a less tangible way, it is also a symbol and occasionally has become a champion of human rights, urbi et orbi, and the protector and promoter of the rule of law. And as political entities go, I think it has a, the Union has a resume that you could be proud of. This summer, if Ricardo and Tom and I had had any inkling of the pace and calendar of the European problems in the autumn, I might have picked a later date for my talk. But then, Michaelmas would have ended. And although many people stay over in Oxford, you always, if I remember right, prefer to have guest speakers in term time, a leaf that I was given by the university upon arrival in 1963 stayed, it remained in my mind since then. The college system of Oxford and Cambridge in brackets is sometimes not fully understood outside the United Kingdom. Send you, thank you for your attention. <laughs>